Okay, Jesse, last week's almost murder getaway was mind-blowing. What's the story this time? When BFFs become obsessive and codependent, someone ends up dead. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about passionate teenagers, terrible decisions, and as always, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please, 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 love slash murder, a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. So, hi! If you are new to love murder we are so happy to have you um and if you are a returning listener you guys will know what a big deal today is because andy (laughs) where are you right now i'm in jesse's basement (laughs) we are in studio and by a studio i mean my basement Uh, after a year of recording over a zoom exactly after a year of bringing you this podcast coast to coast we are together and it feels so good. It's pretty crazy. It is pretty crazy. <laughs> it's also like 55 degrees in my basement. So even though it's 96 outside, we are bundled up. Still having tropical cocktails, but you know. <laughs> yes, we're still having some watermelon Aperol spritzes, which are delicious. So for our reunification, I decided to choose a story about very, very, very crazy best friends <laughs> <laughs> who did not want to get separated at all and resorted to violence. So are you ready to hear what could have happened if we met in high school? Oh, God. No, it definitely wouldn't have been <laughs> us. There's no way in which this could have been us. But I, I think it was uh, it was just a coincidence that I uh, had this on the slate for today. So you had it in your back pocket. I did. Let's do it. With the other half of your best friend charm necklace. <laughs> exactly. Uh, in Christchurch, New Zealand in 1954, two teenage girls named Juliet and Pauline were caught up in a codependent and passionate relationship that had a strong psychological grip on each one. Perhaps, yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to edit that out. <laughs> That's another way it's not like us, though I tried. <laughs> Juliet was a tall, svelte blonde from England with a genius IQ and high society parents. Meanwhile, Pauline was an awkward, angry, and rebellious brunette from the wrong side of the tracks. Hmm. Together, they disappeared into a fantasy world of gods, saints, lovers, and even a dimension that they called the fourth world. The girls dreamed of heading to Hollywood where their beauty and creative genius would be recognized by the glittering elite. But when Juliet's home life required that the girls be separated, they both refused to be parted. Rather than be torn asunder, the two teens hatched a diabolical, bloody plot that would leave one loved one brutally murdered and a nation shocked and horrified. Indeed, the girls would go on to inspire art and film, but certainly not in the way they had once so idealistically yearned for. So what went so murderously wrong? 
We're going to find out today on Love Slash Best Friend Murder. So let's start by talking about young Juliet. Juliet Marianne Hume was born on October 28th, 1938 in London to nuclear physicist father Henry Hume Whoa. and his glamorous homemaker wife, Hilda. Hilda and Henry Hume. On September 3rd, the following year, when little Juliet was not yet one, World War II erupted. So this was not a good time for this family. No, I would, I would not imagine it would no. be. It was like, first of all, obviously Henry's a nuclear scientist. Yeah. So he has to be away a lot for the war effort. Yeah. And Hilda was not naturally warm. So already like motherhood wasn't her favorite thing in the world. Yeah. Uh, and now she's thrust into World War II with an infant. She was very stiff upper lip. And in the book, which the book we're using today is Anne Perry and the Murder of the Century by Peter Graham. Is that the girls? That's the girls, yeah. Well, they are intense it's looking. Super intense. This is Juliet and that's Pauline. Whoa. I know. Pauline kind of looks like a less attractive, like really pissed off Eleven from Stranger Things. Yep, She's got that energy. That. Yeah. But it's like only Eleven when she was like using her powers. Yes, exactly yeah. that face. Yeah. And then um, Juliet was played by uh, Kate Winslet in the movie. No way. And I can totally see the resemblance. Yeah. Very good. Whoa. And this uh, Pauline was played by Melanie Linsky. Did Kate Winslet do a Kiwi accent? Uh, no, because she was British. Because remember, Juliet's got from England. It. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Yep. So yes, great book. Uh, Peter Graham described Hilda as having a very stiff upper lip type of attitude and also that babies should know their place and not be pandered to. Which I don't really know how you're going to teach a baby to know its you're place. Like, Excuse me, baby, you stop. <laughs> I am not going to pander to you. <laughs> exactly. That would go real well. We just like somehow... Got two babies down for naps. Yeah. We, thank with, you. Thank you. That's with a silent applause, I hear. Yes. yes. That was to minimal crying. <laughs> and by minimal crying, I mean Andy and I crying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So she was, she was a. Yeah. So mom. she just wasn't very warm. And then also, basically, she couldn't get help at this point because obviously. During World War II, it was like all the men went to war. All the women had to step in for the manufacturing jobs. Yeah. So there was like no available like nannies or anyone to help her. And she also felt frustrated because she would have at that time in her life rather have been working and helping the war effort yeah. than being at home and feeling like she was stuck and yeah. she wasn't doing anything. So yeah, this is not a great time and it's worse uh, because obviously the Blitz happened in London where they are. So there was just constant bombings happening and of course the constant fear of death. So for hours and hours, Juliet and Hilda would have to endure the roar of falling bombs, the crash of collapsing buildings, and the unending sirens just booming into the night. So scary. It's terrifying. Uh, by then, Juliet was two years old, and she suffered from bomb shock. And for months and months, she would wake up screaming. Oh, my God. Ugh. I mean, that's like how old Alden is. I can't even imagine her having to go through that. I can't imagine any kid or baby. You know, it's terrifying. They have no idea what's going on. Oh, that's so scary. Yeah. So Hilda would later suggest that this emotionally scarred Juliet for life. Juliet was a demanding and sensitive child who was a mismatch emotionally for the distant Hilda. 
And things didn't improve when Hilda gave birth to a second child, a boy named Jonathan they nicknamed Jaunty in March of 1944. Soon after the baby's birth, willful Juliet was sent to Barbados, reportedly due to a bad case of pneumonia that left shadows on both of her lungs. What? Yeah, there was this like really sad story about how Hilda was pregnant with Jaunty and she got stuck in the door of the bomb shelter. Like she was wedged in it trying to get in and Juliet was left out in the snow as a two-year-old and and like for a while while her mother tried to free herself and she was just like left like laying in the snow until she got pneumonia and it was a terrible case. Oh my god, that's horrifying. Horrifying. And so there was no bonding time with her little brother. Basically, she got sick, the baby was born and... They say it was like she was sent to Barbados because it was a better climate for her lungs. Okay. But it seemed like it was twofold. It was like, I can't deal with having a baby and having Juliet, so I'm just going to send her away. Who watched over her? A nurse that they they had hired. That is crazy. So she was taken to the Caribbean by a stranger and lived there with somebody, a nurse she had never met before. It's like she just like subbed out her kid. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so when Juliet was reunited with her family more than a year and a half later, oh my god, she found an almost completely absent father, he's a nuclear scientist during World War II, of yeah. course, and a mother who is consumed now with her small new brother. This would be only the first time of more than a few that Juliet was sent away from the family, and it seemed that to have been separated for so long at such an early age impacted her psychologically for years to come. Yeah. Mm -hmm. While this family was falling apart, Henry was climbing the military ranks as a nuclear weapons expert. In 1946, he was appointed the official scientific advisor to the Air Ministry. But his family was exhausted by the war, and they were also tired of his long but necessary absences. So in 1947, Henry answered an ad looking for academics for high positions in New Zealand universities. He and Hilda thought an academic appointment would allow the family to heal together from the stress of war and that New Zealand would be a much better climate for Juliet and her weak lungs. Okay. Henry was a catch for the collegiate system and hired on as the first full-time rector of Canterbury College in Christchurch. The family was reunited with Juliet in New Zealand and they began to settle into their new life. Henry and Hilda Hume cut a dashing figure. Henry was tall, thin, and bespectacled, looking every inch like an intellectual, and Hilda was a trim, handsome woman who was always dressed impeccably. Despite this, they were not universally beloved by the Christchurch High Society set. Many found Henry to be overly dry and odd, and Hilda was described as arrogant and much too sexually open. Oh. In fact, by the time the family arrived in New Zealand, Hilda had very much fallen out of love with her cerebral husband and was on the hunt for sexual satisfaction in a life filled with pleasure. Oh. Peter Graham wrote in his book that a distinguished New Zealand diplomat who met Hilda in his youth described her as, quote, a very sexy woman. I have never seen a woman so dot 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 steaming. Stop. <laughs> Which I guess is a different type of steamed clam. Yeah, that's all oh. I can think of when I hear steamers is clams. So. St 
steamy. Steamy. She's steamy. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yep. Others were perplexed at the seeming mismatch of the new rector and his wife. One acquaintance commented that how Dr. and Mrs. Hume had ever managed to stop fighting long enough to get married was always an intriguing puzzle to the social worker in all of us. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Julia, who was enrolled in a private school called St. Margaret's, wasn't faring much better in popularity, though she seemed not to care. Julia was fond of disappearing into her own rich fantasy world and resented any intrusion brought by her family or peers. With Henry doing his best to manage a university with politics completely foreign to him, and Hilda on the lookout for a new lover and some excitement in her life. Oh, my God. Neither parent paid much attention to the kids. What a disaster. Mm. <gasps> Juliet wound up getting sent away once more at the age of 12 when she was dispatched to a boarding school in Queenswood on the North Island, many, many hours traveling distance away from the Hume's new home oh in Christchurch. Yeah. She doesn't, she hates this too. It doesn't go well. Yeah, she did not enjoy Queenswood and she eventually got her parents to let her come home. But yeah, this is number two being sent away for virtually no reason. Horrible. We were literally just talking upstairs about how we like don't even, can't even conceptualize dropping our three month old off at daycare up the street. I know. Like, how it's not so hard. Imagine. I mean, especially the one where she was like two and she went away for. A year and a half? That is a different child coming back to you. Yeah. To Barbados from London? It's insane. So yeah, around this time, the Humes moved into a beautiful estate called Elam. And that was a major benefit of being the rector of Canterbury because they just automatically got this gorgeous house to live in. Yeah. It was a beautiful manse built in 1914 by the leading architect of the day. And it sat on 53 acres of meticulous landscaping. The previous tenant had established such an absolutely incredible garden that for 35 years before the Humes moved in, the gardens had been open to the public with admission charged to the Christchurch Horticultural Society. Whoa. Yeah, they're gorgeous. Which is like definitely nice digs if you could get it because I think that they had like a a gardener like on staff for them and everything. You have to. For gardens like that, a lot of the times you have to, especially if they're plants imported from like other countries, you have to like give them the plants medicine and stuff. Exactly. And that's what the guy who lived there before them was actually like a horticulturist insofar as he like bred different types of roses and that sort of thing. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, some plants need, like, antibiotics and stuff. It's weird. Oh, poor yeah. plants. I'm worried about them. You get your shot today. I know. <laughs> so Juliet returns home to this beautiful new house and property, and she also gets academically evaluated before she starts her new school, and she ends up being found to have an IQ of 170, which is extraordinarily high. Yeah, that's trippy. What's the highest again? 200? I have no idea because I read somewhere shows my IQ. that Einstein was like 172. And what? Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. It might have been a different type of scale because she's, as you will see, she's not exactly operating <laughs> completely on genius level throughout this story, I would say. Yeah, but a lot of the times, well, not a lot of the times, but sometimes people with super high IQs don't have like the street smart. Uh, p- potentially. I would say that might be the case here okay. for sure. Yeah, so I think that there's different levels. there's different ways of gauging um, IQs, and there's different tests. Okay. So on okay. this particular test, she got a 170. Wow. So our little psychopathic genius over here <laughs> started at Christchurch Girls High School, which was academically well-rated. 
Juliet was well-liked, actually, at this school. She kind of had blossomed as she turned into a teenager. Um, and she was tall. She was attractive. She was British. And, of course, she had highfalutin parents where her, her dad is the rector of the entire university. Yeah. So some did find her arrogant and haughty, but most of her peers enjoyed her wit. She was supposed to be, like, pretty funny and okay. very smart. Due to her popularity, it was surprising when the willowy, self-confident Juliet befriended a strange girl named Pauline Reaper, who was a bit of a misfit. Pauline had short, wavy, coarse hair, preferred to be called Paul, was stocky, and walked with a limp due to a childhood illness. Huh. Pauline was described by Paul Graham as wearing a perpetually cross expression, hating discipline, and that she seemed to crackle with anger. She spoke sarcastically to her teachers, some of whom seemed to be a little afraid of her. She was, as one classmate put it, a bit creepy. They were, at face value, a very unlikely pair, but there was an undeniable attraction between the girls. So let's talk a little bit about Pauline's background. Okay. Pauline's parents, Honora, so it's like honor, but Honora. Okay. Um, and she goes by Nora. And Bert Reaper had met when 22-year-old Nora was employed as a secretary at 35-year-old Bert's accounting firm. The two began an extramarital affair, and Bert ended up leaving his eight years older wife, Louisa, and their two teenage sons. In July of 1931, Bert officially abandoned the family in Reitihi, which is where they had met. Okay. A small town on the North Island and moved hundreds of miles away to Christchurch with Nora. According to author Peter Graham, the love nest was soon rudely interrupted. On September 23rd, a policeman came to arrest Bert for failure to maintain his wife and children. Whoa. Louisa had taken out a warrant on August 10th and was obviously the source of the descriptions published in the New Zealand Police Gazette. Um, so they published these descriptions of Bert and Nora to like chase them down and get her money oh my god <laughs> yep the apprehension was sought of herbert d reaper formerly of amaku road ratihi age 35 height 55 accountant native of tasmania slight build fair complexion curly fair hair going bald blue gray eyes thin features Oof. Mm-hmm. seldom wears a hat it's so funny at least it's Keep an eye out for someone who is buying, what was it, laxatives? Oh, no, it was um, the Preparation H. That's for uh, if you guys go back to the John List episode. That's right. When he's on the run, the FBI tells tells pharmacies to look out for somebody who's buying buying Preparation H in bulk because he has notoriously famous hemorrhoids. (laughs) <laughs> I just picture him like going up to the counter with just his arms full of preparation age. Oh, um, that reminds me of pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, then she described the other woman that took her man. Oh, God. Accompanied by his former office assistant, Nora Parker, age 23, height 5'7", stout build, sallow complexion. Oh, my God. <laughs> and we... I mean, I think that that's kind of what Nora ends up looking like. She ends up being like a pretty sturdy woman um, for sure. But I think that was probably 
specifically ungenerous because she ran away. She's with, got a little chip on her shoulder. Yeah, right, I would niece. say so for sure. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> Bert must have ponied up some money, however, because there was no record of a court appearance. So he must have just paid off some money and then they let him go. Okay. However, whatever was paid was clearly not enough to make reparations for abandoning the family because Louisa refused to grant Bert a divorce, thus ruling out Nora and Bert's union from ever being legal or respectable. Oh, shit. Yeah, she was mad. Nonetheless, Nora <clears throat> changed her name to Reaper and the two lived as man and wife for the next two and a half decades. Okay. The couple's life was not easy by any standard. Previously a junior... Previously a junior accountant, Bert now worked in a fish shop, and the couple was forced to take in boarders to survive. To compound their hardship, their first baby girl was born with a heart defect and died at only one day old. Oh, my God. Tragic. Tragic. Following that, they had two healthy daughters, Wendy in 1937 and then Pauline Yvonne Reaper on May 26, 1938. Pauline was a healthy, normal little girl until just before five years old, Pauline was a healthy, normal little girl until just before five years old when she contracted osteomyelitis in one leg. Graham discusses the condition in the following passage. An inflammation of the bone marrow due to infection, osteomyelitis, most common in children, is an intensely painful illness and was then, before antibiotics became freely available, life-threatening. At one point, it was touch and go whether Pauline would live. Whoa. Several operations were needed to drain the infected site, and the young girl spent eight or nine lonely months in the hospital. <gasps> oh, my God. For the next two years, she went through the daily agony of having her leg dressed. It would take almost three years for Pauline to get better, and she would be left with a permanent limp. Even 12 years after the illness, she still experienced terrible nights when her legs ached mercilessly and she would need aspirin and codeine to relieve the pain. Oh, my God. Yeah. So you could see also that there would be some bonding for the girls over these childhood illnesses. Yeah. You know. And lack of bonding to their parents. Exactly. The couple was also shocked to find out Honora was Pregnant again when she was 42 and Bert was 56 years old. Whoa. Another baby girl was born, only this time with Down syndrome, and the baby was named Rosemary. Rosemary was beloved by everyone, but the family's resources were slim and Nora needed to work, so they sent the poor child to a residential institution. Oh, no. Yeah. So they make it clear in the book that... You know, obviously, these types of institutions can be really gnarly and people can just, like, put their, you know, developmentally disabled children in them and, like, forget about them, basically, and never see them again. But that was not the Reapers. Okay. They went to visit her every Sunday and she came home to their house every major holiday. Okay, wow. Yeah. So they were – well, it, it seemed to me like it was a decision made out of necessity yeah. about that there wasn't, like, childcare available Yeah. Um. versus they – were somehow, like, you know, throwing her away. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. By high school, Nora and Pauline were often at odds, which is, you know, typical teenage girl stuff. Uh, but also the relationship was mismanaged by Nora, who was too stressed, exhausted, and worn thin to always accommodate her sarcastic and rebellious daughter. Nora could be irritable and critical, and Pauline knew exactly how to push her mother's buttons. It was a recipe for disaster, and many of the mother-daughter conflicts were written extensively in diaries that Pauline kept, 
which we will be taking actually a lot from Pauline's diary because it is later entered into evidence. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, it's also interesting too, there's just so many correlations between these two girls that they have somehow for Pauline, her mother is just too stressed and working too much and trying to survive to be emotionally there for her daughter. Yeah. And in Juliet's case, it just seemed like her mother wasn't naturally a fit for that. Mama dear. Yeah, not mama dear over there. So (laughs) so definitely both of these girls have strained relationships with their mothers as well as those childhood illnesses. Yes. Pauline struggled to make friends, so she was delighted when she hit it off with the popular and self-assured Juliet. The two girls met and bonded over having to sit out of gym class due to Pauline's bad leg and Juliet's bad lungs. Pauline was enthralled by Juliet's good looks, intelligence, haughtiness, and fancy home and parents. Juliet looked and acted like everything she felt like she truly was and truly deserved. Juliet, for her part, seemed attracted to Pauline's defiance and utter disdain for authority. She also loved that Pauline absolutely worshipped her. She was, quote, spellbound, willing to pay homage, willing to be whatever Juliet wanted her to be. Whoa. Yeah. So uh, in the book, it says, it is easy to imagine Juliet realizing for the first time the thrilling possibilities of friendship with another girl, a girl who understood her, saw how unique she was, and would do whatever she asked in order to please her. And Pauline shared many of her interests and ideas. In fact, she soaked up all of her ideas as fast as Juliet's fertile imagination produced them. Mrs. Grinlobs, who worked for the Humes until Christmas 1953, watched the friendship develop to the point where the girls became inseparable. When Pauline first started coming to the house, Mrs. Hume was happy for the two girls to be friends, even though she felt it necessary to explain to the housekeeper, Pauline is not from our social strata. Oh my god. Huge eye roll. Oh my god. Grinlobs observed Juliet's domineering character. Juliet, she said later, could only love herself. Her main consideration was to completely take over someone. Pauline was a shadow person following in Juliet's footsteps. Mm-hmm. Other than perhaps a lopsided power dynamic, the friendship seemed to start off innocently enough. The girls would write and perform plays together. They would ride horses. And they liked to create imaginary worlds in the gardens of Elam. After the school year ended, Pauline would sneak away to Juliet's. And the two would have midnight picnics. Or they would go to the beach in the middle of the night. Or they would have, like, bike rides. Wow. Yeah, so they're just kind of running all over New Zealand. No one's paying attention to them. <laughs> But by the beginning of the next school year, the girls would walk around holding hands and refuse to let anyone into their intense club of two. So girls at the school gossiped about the nature of Juliet and Pauline's relationship, and the staff noticed as well. The headmistress, a Miss Stewart, reported concern to Hilda Hume that the girls' relationship had gone beyond normal friendship. Hilda disregarded the headmistress's fear and asked her not to interfere in her daughter's social life. Oh. Yeah, she was like, you're a close-minded ninny muggins, so step off. Okay. Like, essentially. Hilda always felt like she had a very liberal attitude about, like, sex and about life. Yeah. And she would probably have been arrogant enough to be like, don't you dare, like, say anything bad about my daughter and step off. Okay. But also, secondarily, I don't think she would have cared if they were having a lesbian relationship. Okay. I think that she would have only cared if it made her look bad. Yeah. She wouldn't have, like, actually cared about what they were doing behind closed doors. Yeah. Okay. You know. 
By now, it was clear from Pauline's diary that the two felt like they were unique geniuses flying high above normal people's comprehension. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So Pauline wrote in her diary, we have decided how sad it is for other people that they cannot appreciate our genius. But we hope. (laughs) This is so teenagery. But we hope the book will help them do so a little, though no one could fully appreciate us. The book was a proposed collaboration, and it didn't get very far. But the girls continue to produce poetry. So there's one surviving example of Pauline's poetry. And this is actually, um, there's a line in this that was the inspiration for the title of Peter Jackson's film, Heavenly Creatures, about this case. No way. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into Peter Jackson a little bit later. Okay. Um, but this is from this poem I'm about to read you guys is this is Pauline wrote this and Peter Jackson took a line from it for the title. Okay. It's called The Ones That I Worship. There are living among two beautiful daughters of a man who possesses two beautiful daughters, the most glorious beings in creation. They'd be the pride and joy of any nation. You cannot know nor try to guess the sweet soothingness of their caress. The outstanding genius of this pair is understood by few. They are so rare. (laughs) This totally reminds me of my diary from growing up. I wrote really bad poetry. Really? Oh, yeah. I'll have to, like, let you read it. Sometime you'll die. I can't believe you still have it. I have it somewhere. Only mine's, like, all about, like, boys and, like, like. The tears that I cry are blood seeping from the wound of the river flower. Like, that's, like, what mine sounded like. <laughs> and then I would, like, draw, like, a girl with, like, crying blood or something. Oh, my God. Jesse. Yeah. It's very emo. And then I would just listen to Fiona Apple all day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> this makes sense. Yeah. This tracks. <laughs> um, compared with these two, every man is a fool. The world is most honored that they should deign to rule, and above us these goddesses reign on high. I worship the power of these lovely two with that adoring love known to so few. Tis indeed a miracle one must feel that two such heavenly creatures are real. So that's just part of it. It kind of goes on, but I'm going to save you guys from that. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the two girls kind of fed off each other, and they began to get like really like into manic writing stages where they were now like only sleeping like three hours a night because they would like go out and like be like carousing about town and like not like out to bars like literally I'm talking about like riding their bikes and like going to the beach and yeah they would write all night and like start telling these stories to each other um and at some point they went on a vacation um around the Easter holiday with the Humes okay and they were at like a beach cottage. And this is when they say that they discovered the fourth world, which we're about to talk about. And no drugs were involved. In no this. drugs were involved in this. Isn't that insane? Yeah. On Good Friday, April 3rd, they rose before dawn and walked up the hill behind the cottage. Pauline described in her diary a queer formation of clouds underlit by moonlight reflected off the sea and a vision appearing as the sun rose. Today, Juliet and I found the key to the fourth world. We realize now that we've had it in our possession for about six months, but we only realized it on the day of the death of Christ. We saw a gateway through the clouds. We sat on the edge of the path and looked down the hill over the bay. The island looked beautiful. The sea was blue. Everything was full of peace and bliss. We have an extra part of our brain which can appreciate the fourth world. 
Only about 10 people have it. 10 people? 10 people, just 10. When we die, we will go to the fourth world. But meanwhile, on two days every year, we may use the key and look into the beautiful world, which we have been lucky enough to be allowed to know on this, the day of finding the key to the way through the clouds. Okay. I guess sleep deprivation can make you feel and see things that you would see when you're on drugs. I'm pretty sure that must have had something to do yeah. with that. Yeah. And they were definitely feeding off each other. No one's pumping the brakes on this. They're just like going for yeah. it. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So the two clearly had a rich fantasy world. And like I said, they were egging each other on. And now they're writing and trading fantasy epics. And they're fantasizing about film stars like James Mason and the singer Mario Lanza. When the Humes were invited back to England for an academic conference, the trip was due to stretch out for three months. And the girls refused to be separated for that long. So the Humes allowed Juliet to stay with the Reapers. The arrangement lasted only one week, though, because the girls were, like, doing their thing, running around at night, like, outside. And now it's early winter. And, you know, Juliet has those weak lungs. Yeah. So she became really, really sick. And it was soon discovered that she had tuberculosis. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. So rather than returning home from their trip to England to take care of their sick daughter, they just sent her to a sanatorium. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, poor, poor Juliet. It's like her parents do not give a shit about her. They're like, Ugh, we don't want to, like, stop our trip and have to come home early. Just send her to a sanatorium. Oh, Mm. my God, this poor girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be months before she saw her family. Pauline visited as much as she was allowed to, and the two girls wrote obsessively. They ended up sending each other multiple letters a day. Whoa. How does that even work? Well, they wrote as themselves, but they also wrote as these fictional fantasy characters that they had created called Charles and Lance. And they, like, kind of, like, built this other alternate reality. In the fourth dimension? It it was, like, a whole different thing. Like, they had, like, schemes on schemes on schemes. Wow. Yeah. So this was actually a huge turning point in their relationship as Juliet felt, once again, abandoned by her family. So she became even more dependent on Pauline for the love, attention, and affection that she wasn't getting from her parents. Whoa. They developed several pet names for each other, and they kind of at this point started exclusively calling each other Deborah for Juliet and Gina for Pauline. And the names ostensibly came from movie stars that they admired, Deborah Kerr, you know, for Juliet, and Gina Lola Brigida for Pauline. Okay. Though the headmistress was clearly worried about the potentially homosexual nature of the girl's relationship, Pauline's diary was evidence that she was also interested in boys. While Juliet was convalescing in the sanatorium, Pauline became infatuated with a male university student who boarded at the Reapers. Pauline wrote about her desire to lose her virginity to Nicholas, but despite their best efforts, the act was not consummated for a while. Like, they had to give, like, five goes at it before she successfully lost her virginity. Okay. During one of these attempts at deflowering, Pauline's father, Bert, discovered the two in the boarder's bed and swiftly kicked him out. Oh, my God. Which does kind of seem like a recipe for disaster, having, like, college-age boys around your teenage girls. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Undeterred, Pauline began to sneak out at night to meet Nicholas at his new boarding house. 
It would take a few more tries for Pauline to feel as though she finally lost her virginity, and she wrote that the experience hurt. <laughs> yeah. In one word. Yeah. <laughs> Later, a psychiatrist would claim that Pauline's inability to lose her virginity to a man was a failed attempt at heterosexual functioning and that she was never truly erotically involved with Nicholas. In any case, Pauline did seem to get over the boy quickly, especially when Juliet was deemed healthy enough to return from the sanatorium. Pauline even accompanied the Humes to collect her, later writing in her diary, It was wonderful returning with Juliet. It was as if she had never been away. I believe I could fall in love with Juliet. On the day of Juliet's 15th birthday, she officially ended things with Nicholas, which she wrote was a good thing so that she and Juliet could continue their friendship unmolested with no outside interests. Huh. So yeah, it was suggested later in court that the experience seemed like an affair when Juliet was away. Yep, yep, yep. And that she had to like break up with him on Juliet's birthday to yeah. make things right. Yeah. The resumed friendship was so passionate that the Humes and Reapers consulted a psychiatrist named Dr. Bennett to interview Pauline about their relationship, as well as Pauline's burgeoning bulimia, which had begun oh, while the no. girls were separated. Yeah. So I'm not sure why Juliet escaped the session. For some reason, she didn't get interviewed, only Pauline. Um, but Pauline was not entirely cooperative, acting defensively and replying in curt and sarcastic answers. Nonetheless, the doctor informed Mrs. Reaper that there was a homosexual attachment between the girls. But he told the Reapers and Humes that there wasn't much they could do about it and that he believed that the relationship would just, like, peter out. Okay. And so he's like, they don't need any corrective behavior. Just, like, oh, let God. the relationship run its course. Yeah. You know? Also, like, what's the worst that's going to happen? Yeah. It's. I mean, it is 1954, so it's just a different era. Yeah. It's crazy, but at this time, homosexuality was considered a mental illness. Yes, because they did the corrective stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's so insane. Well, thankfully, this doctor wasn't like that. Yeah. And he's like, just let them be. They'll, whatever, they'll grow out of it. Yeah. Which is yeah. also stupid advice, but it's better than corrective treatment. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. So... The families did attempt to keep the girls apart for a little while. Like, previously, Pauline had always come on vacations with the Humes. Yeah. And the Humes went on a holiday, and they didn't bring Pauline in this case. But once real life commenced, all of the adults involved were just too busy to police Juliet of and course. Pauline. Yeah. And they essentially just gave up trying. Yeah. Because, of course, both Bert and Nora worked full time, and Nora also had to take care of the house and cook for boarders. And Henry Hume, at this point, was failing disastrously in his role as rector and was about to be ousted from his illustrious position. And Hilda had succeeded in her mission. I was going to ask. <laughs> and she was embarking on a romantic and sexual affair with a handsome Canadian engineer named Bill Perry. Oh, my God. Too so, funny. Yeah, everyone's just like, Let's just let these teenagers be lesbians if they want. Yeah. We've got shit to do. Come Who cares? On. Let them be. During this period of relative lack of supervision, Pauline wrote about the girls bathing together and sleeping together in suggestive yet vague terms. They created a list of saints, including James Mason, Mario Lanza, Orson Welles, and Guy Rolfe, and they would spend all night acting out how the various saints made love. Oh. The morning after one of these events, Pauline wrote in her diary, it was wonderful, heavenly, beautiful, and ours. We felt very satisfied indeed. We have now learned the peace of a thing called bliss, the joy of a thing called sin. <laughs> Gotta love a teenage girl. 
Wow, so, I'm yeah, so scared. There's never any direct references to a romantic or sexual relationship. It's all very like we bathed together. I kept sneaking into her bed. Yeah. We, we stayed up in bed all night. Yeah. You know, but there's there's nothing here that would concretely say that they had a relationship. And honestly, later on in life, they denied that they were ever uh, intimate. Know, intimate in yeah. that way. They were just very, very close friends. Yeah. And could be in love with each other and still not intimate. 100%. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, I think it's just they they felt like a kindred spirit with one another. Well, they can go into the fourth dimension. So <laughs> they're, they're one of – They're dimension travelers. <laughs> yeah. How could of- you not feel that close and connected with one of ten people? I mean, that's like a crazy coincidence that they even met, you know? It really is. It oh, really is out of 10 people in so the inspiring. entire world yeah. that the two of them met at Christchurch Girls School. Yeah. Unbelievable. Can you believe it? Yes, I literally cannot believe it. I can't believe it either. <laughs> um, the two became determined to save enough money to move to Hollywood where they could write and act and their genius would finally be understood and rewarded. Finally. They would have been great Scientologists. Oh my gosh, they would be. Yeah. They would have. They would have killed it. Oh, man. Around this time, Hilda Hume had the cojones to move her lover into the apartment connected to the house at Elam. That's hilarious. They had, like, another family living in that apartment, and she kicked them out so she could move her lover in. Wow. And Henry yeah. just didn't care? Yeah, I think at this point, he was like, this ship has sailed. Yeah. I, he was just... And he was, like, busy failing at his job. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he was consumed with that. Like, he just really... He was an academic and... But he was not good at, like, a rector has to play politics. They have to, yeah. you know, manage uh, disputes. They have to go between, like, the board of directors and the faculty and stuff. And he was, like, playing both sides in a way that everybody was unhappy with. Okay. Yeah. So one night, the girls caught him caressing Hilda in a suggestive way. Far from being devastated at her mother's indiscretion, Juliet was overjoyed. She and Pauline hatched a plan to catch the lovers in the act and then blackmail Bill and Hilda into giving them enough money to get to California. Okay. Diabolical. <laughs> like, I think that most people be like, how dare my mother cheat on my father? And she's like, this is freaking great. Yeah, she's like, all right, it's go time. It's go time. Let's blackmail them. So it did nearly succeed when Juliet snuck into the guy's apartment at two in the morning to try to catch her mom and him in bed. Was she going to like take old timey photographs of them or I what? don't know what the plan was or just like be like, boo, like I gotcha. <laughs> I don't know. But apparently they were in bed together, but they were drinking tea. Oh, that's such a disappointment. That's You're like hiding out and they're like, <laughs> they're like, do you want English breakfast or chamomile? One lump or two. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, that was enough, though, that they were in bed together. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Juliet later called Pauline to tell her that she caught them. And she told Pauline that her mother had come clean to her. She said that she and Bill were in love, that Juliet's father knew all about it, and the adults planned to live together as a threesome. Oh. Now, my – What re- a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. There's no blackmail involved if the dad's okay with it. Yeah, that yeah. sucks. And my reading of, about it was like less like threesome like we think it was. Like I don't think they were all sexually involved. No, 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 no. I think it was more like a polyamory type thing. Of course. Where like Henry was like, 
fine. You can, like, be with him. Yep. Too. I don't care. So Juliet countered that even though her dad, like, didn't care, other people probably would. Okay. So you're still going to need to pay me to shut up. And she's blackmailing your parents. <laughs> she said, she later reported that Bill Perry gave her 100 pounds towards an American visa, but he later denies that. He said he never gave her any money. Okay. Juliet did call Pauline, like I said, and she biked over to Elam, like, in the middle of the night to, like, hear all about what's going on. However, when Hilda told Henry, like, look, Juliet knows everything now, he was like, you know what? I don't want my kids knowing this stuff. Like, it was fine. Like, while we were, like, getting away with it and I was, like, dealing with my stuff and you were falling in love. But, like, I'm going to quit being the rector because they're basically asking me to resign. Yeah. And I think we should get a divorce. Okay. So Hilda would have been probably happy to keep the situation going forever. Yeah. Um, but at that point, he sits the girls down. So Henry sits down with Juliet and Pauline, and he's like, okay, guys, a divorce is happening, and the plan is that I'm going to take – basically, I think that they, they plan on Hilda staying in New Zealand with Bill. Yeah. And that he was going to take uh, Juliet to live in South Africa with his sister. Okay. And then take Jaunty and put him in a boarding school in England while Henry tried to find a job in England. Okay. So this family was going to be really split up. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why they wouldn't just take – I guess with Juliet's lungs, they wanted her to stay in, like, a southern hemisphere. I don't know. That's... I, I don't know either. So the girls begged Henry Hume to take Pauline to South Africa as well. And he seemed, at least momentarily, to entertain the thought. So Pauline wrote in her diary that night, We talked for a long time, and Deborah and I were near tears by the time it was over. The outcome was somewhat vague. What is to be the future now? We may all be going to South Africa or Italy and dozens of other places or not at all. We none of us know where we are and a good deal depends on chance. Dr. and Mrs. Hume are going to divorce. The shock is too great to have penetrated my mind yet. It is so incredible. Poor father. Mrs. Hume was sweet and Dr. Hume was absolutely kind and understanding. Deborah and I have spent the day soaring between hell and heaven. Deborah and I. I know. That's what she calls her. They call each other Deborah and Gina. Such a huge amount has happened that we do not know where we are. Dr. Hume is the noblest, most wonderful person I've ever known. But one thing, Deborah and I are sticking together through everything. We sink or swim together. Whoa. Okay, Gina. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Gina. And things were not looking good for old Henry Hume. He was asked to resign from his position as rector, his wife is having a torrid love affair, and his daughter is running amok. Julia and Pauline started shoplifting and selling what they stole to attempt to make money for Pauline's fare to South Africa. Amazing. They're just like sneaking about. I guess there was even like a burglary attempt. Like Pauline attempted to like burgle a shop, but there was like a cop around the corner and then she like freaked out and ran back home. <laughs> yeah. And even Henry actually got a letter in the mail, an anonymous letter saying like your daughter's been shoplifting. Oh, my God. Yeah, and somehow uh, Juliet convinced him that it was just a joke, that somebody was playing a joke on her by accusing her by anonymous letter. <laughs> and Henry's like, okay, whatever. So by now, like, Pauline's writing in her diary that the girls are so close that they're telepathic, that they read each other's minds. Like, they operate as one. Like, it's all about Juliet. And Pauline was staying almost constantly at Elam at this point. She's just, like, living there. Okay. And How they, old are they at this point? Uh, so Pauline is about to turn 16. Okay. Juliet is like 
five months younger. So they're okay. like 15, almost 16. Okay. Um, they also, she would write about how they weren't allowed to sleep in the same bed because obviously there was like concerns about their relationship. So um, Pauline had her own room at Elam and she would put like a doll and like clothes in the bed to make it look like she was in bed and then she would sneak to Juliet's room. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was going somewhere else. Andy hates dolls so much. <laughs> Do you think that's like the number one thing you hate? Yeah. Dolls. Yeah, like anything that looks like it could move on its own. Oh. Yeah, like inanimate objects that could move. <laughs> um, okay, what about Annabelle? Does that freak you out? Are you kidding? <laughs> Is that even like a question? <laughs> Both Hilda and Henry, seemingly loathe to deal with the girls' reactions, seemed to string them along, leading them to believe that Pauline was absolutely going to be allowed to come live with Juliet and her aunt in Johannesburg. Of course, Pauline's mother, Nora, was not going to let her barely 16-year-old daughter move to a foreign country with another family. Of course not. Of course not. That's why when you were explaining all this, I was like, if they're 18, they can do whatever the fuck they want, right? Yeah, but they're not. They're yeah. 15, yep, 16. Exactly. The Humes were put in kind of a good cop role over here because it, it seemed to me that both Hilda and Henry knew that Mrs. Reaper was going to say no. Yeah. So instead of like also being like, yeah. that's the right thing, they were like, well, we would have let you. Yeah. It's because of your mom. Yeah. She won't let you yeah. go. She's the real bitch here. Yeah, exactly. Because they were not good parents and they didn't want to deal with their daughter's reaction. Yeah. So they totally scapegoated yeah. um, uh, Mrs. Reaper about this. So, of course, this paints Nora as the obstacle to the girls' desires, which was, of course, to stay together. In desperation, the girls tried to find a way around Nora Reaper, but they could not. So it was decided that Pauline's mother have to die. You shut your mouth. Pauline, Are you serious? I am dead serious. No pun intended. <laughs> pun intended. Uh, yeah, so Pauline wrote in her diary that night, our main idea for the day was to moiter. She spelled it like, a, they like to say murder like a gangster. M-O-I-D-E-R. Moiter. You, I mean, they're children. This is children planning a moiter. Our main idea was to moiter mother, Pauline recorded. This notion is not a new one, but this time it is a definite plan which we intend to carry out. We have worked it out carefully and are both thrilled by the idea. Thrilled. Naturally, we feel a trifle nervous, but the pleasure of anticipation is great. I shall not write this plan down, as I shall write it up when we carry it out, in parentheses, I hope. Peculiarly enough, Pauline wrote, I have no conscience. Or is it peculiar? We are so mad. So, the fear of separation had certainly been the flame, but years of fighting and frustration were the kindling in this murderous decision. Pauline hated her mother for her nagging, her small-mindedness, and what she perceived as her stupidity. She believed that she belonged with her beloved Juliet and the glamorous Humes, whom she idealized even as their family was falling apart. Yep. Time was running out for the girls as Juliet and Henry were to leave on July 3rd for the first leg of the trip to Australia. Pauline believed that after her mother's death, her father would grant her consent to get a passport and join the Humes, but they didn't have time to spare. By June 19th, murdering Pauline's mother had become a definite plan. Here was the plan according to Peter Graham. So the girls had decided that either they had to make the death look natural 
or like an accident, obviously. Um, they finally concluded that it would be an accident. They would persuade Pauline's mother to go for an outing with them to Victoria Park, a safe distance from the city. They would then suggest a walk down a quiet track that Pauline remembered from a visit six months earlier. Pauline would have a sandbag in her shoulder bag. Juliet would go ahead, drop a pink stone on the track, and point this out to Pauline's mother. While Mrs. Reaper was bending down to look at the stone, Pauline would whack her over the head with the sandbag, and she would collapse dead. Push her off the track so it would look as if she had fallen, banged her head, and died. Okay, this is brutal. It's brutal, and it's also, they have no idea what it's like to kill somebody because you don't just, like, hit them once over the head and they're dead. Yeah, they're doesn't like, happen. you hit, kapow, whack, yeah. <laughs> boom. She's dead. She got moited. <laughs> yeah, that's not exactly how it goes down. <laughs> they would then rush up the track and call for help, acting shocked and distressed. It was a fairly simple plan. They thought they had an even chance of getting away with it. If it didn't work, if it didn't work, it wouldn't be the end of the world. As minors, they wouldn't hang. Probably they would only get six or seven years in jail, maybe less time in the loony bin if they could convince people they were insane. But they would still be together. That was the important thing. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. That was, this was not a good plan. Pauline would have the great satisfaction of having avenged all of her mother's miserable misdeeds and unpleasantness. But more than that, the world would know of her wonderful, beautiful friendship with Juliet Hume, who had been prepared to commit murder with her for her so they could be together forever. (sighs) They planned the moiter for Tuesday, (laughs) June 22nd. And that night, Pauline wrote in her diary, I feel very keyed up as though I were planning a surprise party. Ew. Yeah, this is sick. Mother has fallen in with everything beautifully, and the happy event is to take place tomorrow afternoon. So next time I write in this diary, Mother will be dead. How odd, yet how pleasing. The next morning, Tuesday, June 22nd, she wrote her diary while still in bed, carefully heading the page in fancy writing, The Day of the Happy Event. I'm writing a little of this up on the morning before the death. I feel very excited, and the night before Christmas-ish last night. Ew. It's really intense. That same morning. Can you imagine if our daughters wanted to kill us? <laughs> well, wait till we get to the description of the killing. All I could think about was my sweet little toddler whacking me in the head with a brick. That same morning, Juliet picked up a half brick from a pile of discarded bricks near the garage at Elam, wrapped it in newspaper, and put it in her bag. To Bill, Perry, and Hilda, she seemed radiantly happy and very calm. She left to go to the Reapers, where the girls placed the half brick in the foot of one of Pauline's school uniform stockings and tied a knot at the ankle to keep it in place. My God. Pauline set it in her bag, and the plan commenced. It was a beautiful day for the shortest day of the year. A balmy 64 degrees Fahrenheit, and all three women were in great moods. Nora was so delighted that Pauline was happy and being kind to her for once. Oh, my God. They were having such a good time, they stopped at a tea kiosk. The kiosk caretaker reported that they had scones and snacks, tea for Nora, and soft drinks for the girls. Juliet and Pauline were polite, and the threesome was quiet and pleasant. Just before three, they paid their bill, and the women set off for a nice hike. As the foliage grew denser and the path became muddy, Nora told them she didn't want to trek any further. 
The girls walked a bit further on the path to have one last pep talk. And then it was murder go time. Moida. Moida go time. Juliet ran ahead. Pauline walked behind Nora, reaching into her shoulder bag for the deadly weapon. When Juliet got far enough ahead to let Pauline prepare, she dropped the pink stone and yelled for Mrs. Reaper to come and see what she had discovered. As Nora bent her head to look down at the pretty stone, Pauline swung the brick as hard as she could against her mother's skull. Oh my god. Nora raised her arms defensively, now realizing her teenage daughter was attempting to kill her, and she tried to fight back. But both Juliet and Pauline took turns holding her down and beating her savagely with the stocking half brick. Oh my god. In their fury and aggression, the stocking broke, and Nora was facing the sky on her back, gurgling terribly while she witnessed the baby girl she had once given birth to picking up the half brick outside of the stocking at this point and hammering it into her head. And so she did this repeatedly until Nora started sputtering and twitching convulsively and then passed away. Oh my god. So they tried to drag her to a place where they could like roll her down a hill um, so it would appear more like an accident. But they could barely shift her a few feet. The dead weight was more than they anticipated. Now, these dumb girls. They're so dumb. They're completely covered in blood as well. I mean, think about all of the blood from beating somebody to death like that. No. They raced back to the tea kiosk, shouting for help. The woman who ran the kiosk was shocked at their appearance and demanded that they take her to their mothers. Because the girls are coming in, they're screaming. Mother's dead. Mother's dead. Oh, my God. She needs help. I don't know what's going on. And, and she's like, take me to her. And then Juliet starts going like, no, I can't go back there. I'm not going to that horrid place. And so the woman's like, wait, how can I help your mom if you won't take me to where she is? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they refused to go back to where Nora was. Instead, they explained to the caretaker of the park and his assistant where she could be found. So they ran down to help Nora as the girls washed the blood off their hands and face in a sink at the tea kiosk. When Agnes, who is the tea kiosk woman, brought them towels, Juliet said, oh dear, isn't she nice? And both girls started just laughing really hard. So Agnes was like, that is a really weird response um, to a horrific accident that you'd be like giggling afterwards. So Agnes asked repeatedly how the accident had happened, and Juliet kept saying, don't talk about it. I can't bear to talk about it. Pauline eventually said she slipped on a plank and hit her head on a brick. Her head kept bumping and banging as it fell. Juliet chimed in, don't think about it. It's only a dream. We'll wake up soon. Let's talk about something else. <laughs> um, and so then, like, Agnes tried to, like, bring up school to be like, where do you guys go to school? Like. I'm going to try to distract you. But Pauline said, mummy, she's dead. Agnes suggested maybe she wasn't hurt that badly, and Pauline just stared at her. After a long silence, Pauline volunteered that they had tried to pick her mother up and carry her, but she was too heavy, and they had dropped her. Perhaps we didn't do the right thing, she suggested. Both kept saying that they wanted to go home. Will my daddy be long? Juliet asked no one in particular. I wish he would hurry. She wanted to get away at once from this horrible place. 
Pauline said she just wanted to go to bed, although she was very calm, Agnes observed. Whoa. So they called Henry Hume to pick up the girls. And as the ambulance approached, they also called an ambulance yeah. for Nora. Um, the caretaker told the, you know, ambulance workers that the woman was unmistakably dead. Okay. Henry Hume picked up the girls and whisked them back to Elam. They repeated their story of an accident to Juliet's parents. Upon their arrival, Hilda instructed the girls to bathe, and Henry took their blood-soaked clothes to the cleaners. Later on, they gave the girls a light supper and a sedative to sleep. Meanwhile, back at the crime scene, it was clear to the detectives that Nora Reaper was indeed murdered. They found defensive wounds all over her hands and arms, and they also found the ripped stocking in the half brick. Oh, my God. I mean, you guys just left it there? Pretty piss poor cover up for a couple of geniuses, I gotta say. Yeah, one out of ten, or two out of ten. Yeah, two out of ten. I don't want to meet the other eight. Uh Uh-uh. The police on the scene were sickened. I mean, number one, murders at this time were very rare in Christchurch. And if it did happen, it was like, maybe somebody was shot or something. Nobody had been beat savagely like this. Yeah. And the number two thing that horrified them was because they... They knew based on the witness testimony of from the kiosk tea woman and the caretaker that the people who did it were two teenage girls. Wow. And it definitely freaked out one of the detectives who had a daughter the same age as Juliet and Pauline. And he was like, I can't imagine my daughter doing no. this. Sick. It's so sick. By 7.30 p.m., the detectives were ordered to interrogate the girls, and poor Burt Reaper appeared on the scene where he was notified that his wife had been killed and his daughter was a suspect. Numb and in terrible shock, he consented to the police interviewing Pauline, because she's underage, Yeah, and a search of their home, a search of the Reaper's home. Where they would find the journal. Exactly. Yeah. The phone also rang at the Humes, and Henry and Hilda were informed that Nora had died, and they were doing a full criminal investigation. Detectives would be over shortly to interview the girls. Horror dawned on Hilda that her imaginative, temptuous daughter had potentially committed murder. So um, Peter Graham then wrote that Hilda went upstairs to Juliet's untidy bedroom and gathered up her scribblings, the two novels she had written in a pile of school exercise books, her poems, her scrapbooks, her letters from Pauline, and her diary. She knew Juliet kept a diary and with a rush of panic worried about what it might contain. The last few entries gave her heart a stab. Flipping the pages, it was immediately clear that the diary was terribly embarrassing and dreadfully incriminating. On no account could it be seen by the police. She tucked it away in a safe place to be destroyed in the morning. And then she kept some of his, her other writings, like, to give to the police, like, yeah, the more yeah, innocent yeah, yeah. ones. Yeah. So that's why we only have Pauline's diary. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So initially, Hilda, Henry, and Bill Perry very subtly attempt to have Pauline take all the blame. Yeah. They're basically like, so Juliet wasn't there when your mother fell down, right? Juliet was ahead of you, so she had nothing to do with this. And at first, Pauline's like, okay, sure, I'll take the fall for Juliet. Yeah. Um, And so she kind of, like, agrees. And at this point, like, the the Humes and Bill Perry are like, oh, thank God. Like, Pauline is going to take the heat for this one yeah. and we can get Juliet the hell out of this country. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when Pauline's in jail that night, she was like, I don't 
don't really know if I want to take the heat for this. Well, yeah, because she wants to be with She wants Juliet. to be with Juliet. Yeah. And now she's alone in jail. In jail. Yeah. And Juliet's going to be going to South Africa. Yeah. Uh, so she ends up writing a note on an envelope in her cell that says, I am taking the blame for everything. And the detective sergeant finds it and recognized that by writing that, she's like kind of wink, wink, letting him know, like that infers that there was something yep. that she should have you know, yep. taken the blame for. So at that point, they like bring the envelope to Juliet and they're like, we found this in Pauline's cell. We feel like you're involved. And Juliet just admits to the whole thing. She's like, oh, yeah, we murdered her. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yeah, so poor Burt Reaper was tasked with identifying Nora's body, which was horrifying because one of the cops described her head as being literally battered to pieces. Ew, Jessica. Nobody needs to see their loved one like that. No. Mm. By their daughter. By their daughter. Uh, In fact, the pathologist had found 45 external injuries to Nora's face, including 24 lacerated wounds to the skull that had penetrated to the bone. Okay, Jesse. I don't I don't know how you can do that to anyone, let alone your mother. No, she's a psychopath. Yeah. Bert also turned over Pauline's diary, which is why we know so much about yeah. her. Um it and is all also, of her poetry. All of her poetry. I mean, also, like I said, and I read to you in that passage, she talks about the plan to murder her mother yeah. very, yeah. very plainly. So there was no way with that and Juliet's confession yeah. that no. these girls were getting no. away with this. The first night the two girls were in prison together, they were assigned a constable to be on suicide watch, as is the custom for those charged with murder. Okay. But suicide was far from what Juliet and Pauline were thinking about. The constables were shocked the girls appeared downright giddy. They chatted happily away together, even gossiping, and then slept soundly. Psychos. Um... In Peter's, in, in Peter Graham's words, using their nicknames, he said, Deborah and Gina were happy together again. Whatever happened next, one thing was for sure. Deborah would not be going to South Africa, leaving Gina behind. In April, when they had first heard of Deborah's parents leaving New Zealand and that they were probably going to divorce, and South Africa was mentioned, the two girls had made a pact. They would sink or swim together. Even if they were now sinking, they were still together and would remain together. Nothing else mattered. So when both girls are processed and officially charged, the press gets a whiff of the scandalous killing committed by teenage girls, and the case becomes a media sensation. The news reporters dig into both families' lives and discover that Bill Perry and Hilda Hume were having an affair. By now, Henry Hume had taken 10-year-old Jaunty back to England to shelter him from the media attention, and Hilda had decided to stay with her lover and support her daughter throughout the trial. Okay. This would prove disastrous for the couple whose affair became huge gossip fodder, and salacious tales were told suggesting that Henry, Hilda, and Bill were engaged in a hot and heavy menage a trois. Mm. Mm. It was further revealed that Nora and Bert Reaper had not been legally married, and Bert had not been paying any alimony or child support to his first wife. Pauline and her sister Wendy were shocked. The girls had no idea that their parents weren't married. Whoa. The courts officially renamed Nora Reaper, posthumously Nora Parker, as Parker was her maiden name. Yeah. 
And as Pauline was now technically a bastard in the eyes of the court, her last name also reverted to Parker. Whoa. I know. Pauline and Juliet obviously featured most heavy in the tabloids, reports of lesbian sex and perverted trysts under the rector's own roof permeated all news reports. Yeah, can you imagine? It's salacious. Yeah. Pauline got it the worst, described as a lesbian from the fish shop who'd also been, quote, done over by at least one of her parents' boarders. Ew. Ugh. That's revolting. Also the lesbian from the fish shop. That's not a great description. No. <laughs> All of Christchurch and eventually the Globe were horrified, scandalized, and titillated. <laughs> the girls were subjected to a battery of psychiatric tests, and it was determined that the defense would be one of insanity. Throughout their early confinement and psychiatric interviews, the girls remained haughty, arrogant, and utterly unrepentant for their crimes. On August 23, 1954, the trial began. A psychologist named Dr. Medlicott testified on behalf of Juliet and Pauline's defense, saying that the girls had been insane at the time of the crime due, one, to their homosexuality. Like I said, in 1954, it was considered a mental disorder. Yep. But also because they were suffering a folie et deux, which is French for a madness shared by two and also known as shared psychosis. Huh. It is, according to Wikipedia, a psychiatric syndrome in which systems of a delusional belief are transmitted from one individual to another. Dr. Medlicott contended that the delusions Pauline and Juliet shared were those of being geniuses, of being incomparably special, talented, and beautiful. The two shared a delusion that the rules did not apply to them. Yep. He discussed elements of each girl's isolation growing up due to their respective illnesses and the obsession and codependency that resulted when they became involved. Whoa. The prosecution was not buying it and had three other psychiatrists testify to the fact that the girls were sane because they had premeditated the act and they admitted in interviews that they knew at the time what they were doing was wrong. Yep, 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 yep. So the defense countered that, that you can be insane and understand something is wrong, but the insanity is believing that you won't have to pay for it or your outcome will be different somehow. Okay. Because they could say, yes, they knew it was wrong. They, they thought they were so special that they were going to get away with it. Yeah. But that's just you kind of being an entitled little bitch. Yeah, I think so too. And not being insane. I don't think that's being insane. No. Um, the defense attorney stressed that the girls were sick in his closing statement saying, is it not clear from the facts that have been proven that these girls is what is commonly called crackers? Crackers. I submit to you that they were incapable of forming a moral judgment on what they did. These girls are mentally ill, sick adolescent, not brutal criminals. No, it sounds like they just weren't raised properly. Yeah. They, like, don't know about consequences. No. It's and not... their brains aren't fully formed because they're teenagers. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's We've not... had, like, quite a few teenage killers. And they, I feel like I was right to always be terrified of teenagers. <laughs> like, our second case ever, teenage killers. Yeah. The Shonda case. Yeah. Shanda case. Oh, teenagers are horrifying. They're also really brutal. I feel like they're some of the more brutal crimes we've had. Yeah. I mean, I think it's because they're not, like you said, they're not adults yet. They don't understand consequences and, like, life and – Yeah. Especially if you're, like, on their tip where it's all, like, mythic – it's they, like, believe Fantastical. in another dimension. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the jury said, you bugger right off with that and declared the girls sane and guilty, guilty as fuck. 
And so normally at this time in history in New Zealand, if you were convicted of murder, you would be executed by hanging. I, that's what I thought you were going to say. Yeah. Also, like 1954. I can't believe they were still hanging people. It's crazy. However, because the girls were 15 and 16 and thusly underage, they were only sentenced to serving time at Her Majesty's pleasure, meaning they could be paroled virtually at any time. Wow. Yep. The true punishment came in the form of an edict that declared that both girls were never to be housed in the same prison at the same time. And that not only would they be separated for the duration of their incarceration, they weren't allowed to write letters to each other or communicate at all. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's their real punishment. Yep. Almost immediately, Hilda and Bill Perry moved to Australia to escape the notoriety in New Zealand. But then the press just got on them saying like, oh, she's abandoning her daughter. Yeah. Like she's leaving her. What's new though? Exactly. And it, I mean, it's pretty par for course. She yeah. didn't want to be around her sick, tiny child. Yeah. She's not going to be around her proven guilty for murder child. Yeah. No. The couple married after the Hume's divorce went through and moved to England, where they found life difficult after the taint of the trial. Bill had lost his job due to the bad publicity and was finding it difficult to find another. Hilda was forced to take a low-paying job, and the two scraped together a paycheck-to-paycheck existence. Henry Hume fared much better, potentially because he left New Zealand directly after the murder, and so, like, he wasn't in any of the tabloids. Like, Poor Hilda. She wasn't a great mom. But, like, her picture was in the newspapers, like, mother of the killer every single day. Yeah. So he left. So he kind of avoided that. And he resumed his nuclear science career in England. He also met and wed a thrice-married heiress named Marjorie Ducker. And Jaunty apparently excelled in English boarding school. Oh, good. Yeah. So he was pretty sheltered from the fallout. So, like, I think Hilda was a little bitter that henry did so well afterwards but like they made the right call for jaunty because he was also sheltered from the fallout yeah the reapers suffered greatly bert had lost the love of his life as well as her income from work and arranging the cooking and cleaning for the boarders so he had suffered financially as well as emotionally older sister wendy had lost her mother obviously and her fiance dumped her as the notoriety of the family grew yeah I mean, not to mention the fact that they had to be grappling with the fact how one member of their nuclear family viciously murdered the other one. Yeah. It has to be an intensely painful emotional conflict there, you know? Yeah. And also think about poor little Rosemary in the institution who was only five or six years old at the time of the murder, whose loving mother would never again visit her or welcome her into the family. I'm sure, like, was How do you ever- explain that to a baby with Down syndrome? I have no special idea. needs at all. Yeah. I have no idea. No. Oh, that poor child. Juliet fared pretty well in prison. She was stoic, kept her head down, and performed her prison work without complaint. Pauline, however, pined terribly for Juliet. She had a new nickname for her. She called her Pandy while they were in prison. Oh, my God. And she wrote in her prison diary... <laughs> I have been walking around with tears streaming down my face lately. Oh, Pandy, how I miss you. I who adored you. I who worshipped you. What did I do that I should lose you? You murdered your mom. You moitered your mom. (laughs) What do you mean, what did I do? Pauline's like, well, that was a rhetorical question. Yeah. (laughs) Pauline also displayed dramatic mood swings, one day weeping for what she had done to her family and because she missed Julia, and the next day happily playing cards with other inmates. 
Pauline was recorded as having a hard time making close prison friends, though. And an official complaint was lodged that Pauline kept putting her arm around a particular inmate and calling her dear and darling. And another complained that Pauline had stolen her chocolate. Oh, little chocolate thief. Add that, mother murderer, chocolate thief. Uh, But other than that, she seemed like a polite, studious, and courteous prisoner. After only about five and a half years in jail, both girls were released only a few months apart. Wow. The parole board declared them rehabilitated. They said that the murder was a once in a million chance occurrence. So despite the fact that they get out of prison respectively, they never see each other ever again. Whoa. Ever again. They never. Until they get to the other dimension. <laughs> With the other people. Yeah. That's going to be really awkward because there's not a lot of people there. No. It's like 10. Yeah. Only. So it's kind of hard to avoid each other in the fourth world. Yeah. Uh, so yes, they're only like 21 when they get out. Crazy. They really, truly do have their whole lives ahead of them. So Juliet went first to Australia and then to England, where she changed her name to Anne Stewart Perry, eventually dropping the Stewart and going by Anne Perry. According to Peter Graham, Anne had learned shorthand typing in prison and found it easy to get a job as a secretary. After a couple of years, she moved into a flat and started to go out with boys. I was always dreading the day I'd have to tell somebody what I had done, she later told a journalist who interviewed her. But in the end, I only ever felt close enough to one boyfriend to tell him. She was keen to stress her heterosexuality. Pauline Parker was a very good friend. We had all sorts of romantic dreams. I like women very much as good friends, but for romance, it has to be a male. Oh, that's what she said. She still wanted to go to the United States more than anything, but was denied a visa on account of, you know, being a murderer. (laughs) I don't think that would bode well. No. Um, But she did find a workaround by becoming a flight attendant. Whoa. And apparently they, like, have visas, like, that the, the airline can just, like, give them to somebody. Wow. Yep. So that guaranteed her entry to the country of her dreams. And Juliet slash Anne lived in L.A. from 1967 to 1972. Oof, thank God not when I was there. No. Or alive. Or even remotely alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, while she was in L.A., she converted to Mormonism, which is like old school Scientology. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, though, she did end up moving back to a small seaside town in Scotland. When Pauline was released, she changed her name to Hillary Nathan and reported to a parole office in Auckland, New Zealand. She eventually graduated from Auckland University in 1963. After graduation, Pauline slash now Hillary briefly entered a convent, but it turned out nunnery was not for her. After the convent, she became a librarian, and I wonder if she ever shelved a novel by her former bestie and rumored paramour, <coughs> because Juliet, a.k.a. Anne Perry, went on to become a best-selling murder mystery author. You are lying. How? She really did. At the age of 41, Anne Perry published a book called The Cater Street Hangman which was a Victorian London set murder mystery about a serial killer who murders five young women with a cheese wire and then disfigures their breasts. The villain turns out to be a crazed vicar's wife who had lusted after the young women and killed them to avoid temptation. Oh my God. Muy interesante. 
Moy. Murder. Moida. Moida. <laughs> it became a commercial success in the United States, and Anne Perry began to churn out book after book, assisted by her friend and lifelong companion, Meg McDonald. By 1994, she had sold 3 million copies of her books in the United States alone and had a $1 million contract for eight new novels. Oh, my God. So that's, uh, so the 1 million back then is about 1.8 million in today's <laughs> money, which amounts to roughly $227,000 a book. And she was turning out like two books a year. Oh, my God. Anne Perry's popularity only rose after 1994 when Peter Jackson, of Lord of the Rings fame, released a film called Heavenly Creatures Based on the Murder. Peter Jackson, a native Kiwi, and his longtime partner Fran Walsh were totally intrigued by the case. He said in New Zealand that the murder was an open wound that had never healed. He directed and co-wrote with Fran, and the film starred a pre-Titanic <coughs> Kate Winslet who is just stunning. And, I mean, look at them. It's just, like, perfect casting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this was kind of a breakout role for Kate Winslet. Okay. And another woman named Melanie Linsky, which I can't think of anything she's been in off the top of my head, but you would recognize her for cool. sure. Uh, the girls were exceptionally well cast. The film garnered the Silver Lion at the Venice Film Festival and received an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay for Peter Jackson. Wow. Leading up to the film's release, Peter received a call from Lynn Ferguson, an English tabloid journalist who had discovered the famous writer Anne Perry's real identity as Juliet Hume, murderess. Peter apparently attempted to persuade Lynn not to run the story, saying they're not Nazi war criminals. They don't deserve to be hunted down. He actually had a, a slightly sympathetic light on the case. I don't know. It's hard to say. I saw most of the movie. Uh, it was weird. It wasn't like streaming anywhere that I could get for such a big movie. Um, so I had to watch it like a, a really like bootlegged version from YouTube with um, Spanish subtitles. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And so there is he tried to humanize the girls in their story. Okay. But the, the actual murder scene is so brutal that you, you can't walk away actually feeling sympathetic, you know, at all. So basically... When Lynn heard this from Peter Jackson, she considered it, but then she was like, um, Anne Perry is a peddler of murder for money. Yeah. She's writing murder books. Like, I don't feel bad about blowing up her spot. So Anne's life was completely blown up when it was revealed that this famous author was actually this teenage murderer. murderer. Yeah. But with the film that came out and, you know, the big media coverage of the big reveal it actually just ended up being awesome pr for yeah. her books yeah all pr is good pr uh-huh as of november 2020 according to mysterysequels.com ann perry has published over 40 novels and sold over 26 million copies of her holy work. shit oh my god it's crazy of the film ann perry has said it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because now I feel free. There's nothing to be afraid of anymore in the middle of the night. Later on her website, she would briskly dismiss the film that launched Peter Jackson's international career. I've been asked questions occasionally about the film Heavenly Creatures, but I cannot answer them. Neither I nor my family or friends knew anything about it until the day before it was released, and I have preferred not to see it or comment on the accuracy or otherwise any part of it. I am very grateful to the vast majority of generous people who allow me to move on and leave that grief behind. 
After the Juliet, Hume, and Perry unmasking, and with the success of Heavenly Creatures, the media then turned their attention to locating Pauline. Yeah. yeah. She was eventually tracked down in Kent, England, as the reclusive proprietess of an equestrian school. After being inundated with media requests, Pauline authorized her sister, Wendy, to comment on her behalf. And Wendy said... That her sister was not like Anne Perry. She had no interest in giving interviews, but was prepared to allow New Zealanders to learn of her new life. She asked that once they had heard her story, she be left alone to continue her quiet existence. Wendy explained that Hillary lived as a recluse in a village where no one knew of her secret past. Although she had failed to become a nun, she was now a nun in her own way. She's living in solitude. She's deeply religious. She leads a very unusual existence. She doesn't have a TV or a radio. She would have never heard what Anne Perry had to say, and she wouldn't care. Wow. Mm-hmm. She had not seen and did not want to see heavenly creatures. She doesn't have any contact with the outside world. She's a devout Roman Catholic and spends much of her time in prayer. It had been her sister's childhood dream to own a place in the country and have a stable of horses. Now she had achieved that lifestyle. She was a much more contented person. She has led a good life and is very remorseful for what she's done. She committed the most terrible crime and has spent 40 years repaying it by keeping away from people and doing her own thing. Though the two women were never in touch ever again, they did both eventually live in remote Scottish towns, interestingly enough. Weird. Yeah. However, in 2017, Anne left Scotland to move back to L.A. in order to produce and promote films based on her books. As far as I know, she may still be there, but I didn't find any movies made out of her books. Okay. Um, I did some very cursory Googling, so I don't know. There might be, um, but obviously they weren't. Big. Yeah. You know. Both women are in their 80s now and living relatively quiet lives. Whoa. Both women have denied they were ever involved in a romantic or sexual relationship. As far as the social effects of the case, in 1991, a book was published by Julia Glamazina and Allison Laurie called Parker and Hume, A Lesbian View. <laughs> the book was hesitant to outright label Parker and Hume lesbians as they had denied being lesbians themselves. Yeah. But gently suggested that they were closeted. The book focuses on the experience of lesbians in settings like 1950s, racist, sexist, classist, homophobic Christchurch. Yep. And why the coverage of the trial was just a sensational cesspool. They also discussed the negative effects to New Zealand lesbians for decades. Especially yeah. this case became, like Peter Jackson said, this open wound. Yeah. And lesbians were therefore villainized. Yeah. Yeah. And so they said on one hand, there's like this representation, like it might not have occurred to other women that you could love somebody like that you know that they're like oh here's a version of the love i want to share but it's with evil murderers yeah yeah yeah. yeah. you know and so yeah. obviously uh, the villainization of the lesbian lifestyle made it impossible for women in yeah. new zealand to come out for decades yes yeah which is terrible and as far as you know an interview that juliet gave she later would say about the crime that she was taken out of school with chest problems. She had a lonely time relieved only by the friendship of another girl, Pauline Reaper. I don't want in any way to implicate or blame her, but she wished me to join her in this act, and I believe that if I did not, she would take her own life. We were going to leave the country. I felt like I was deserting Pauline. We would have taken her with us, but her mother wouldn't let her go. She felt her mother was the only thing stopping her from leaving a situation she felt was intolerable. Yeah. 
I believed at the time her survival depended upon her coming with us. I sincerely believed that her life was in the balance. Crazy as this sounds, I thought it was one life or the other. I just couldn't face the thought of being responsible for her dying. And I made a foolish choice. Hmm. Crazy. I think, like, what's even crazier, though, is that we talk a lot about how you can't uh, financially benefit from your own crimes. But isn't that weird that she's kind of benefiting from her crime? Yeah. By a lot. By a lot. And that's, like, all she does. And she only writes out murder. Yeah. It's creepy. It's creepy. BFFs forever. <laughs> BFFs. We will never be separated again. Can you believe I picked this case for today? It's hilarious. <laughs> and it really is. <laughs> okay, guys. We are so happy to be reunited. And we are so, so, so even more happy to have you with us on this ride. And your reviews have been spectacular lately. Thank you. You guys are so incredible. And we cannot thank you enough. So if you enjoyed today's story, please leave us a nice review. A nice one. A nice one. Yeah. And in conclusion, maybe if you're creating an imaginary afterlife, you should make it open to more than 10 people. Yeah, that and uh, this story proves that even if you have an IQ of 170 or above, that you uh, you might not have the street smarts to, to hang. No, that does not ensure good decision-making no. skills. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up moitered. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Love you. Bye. Bye.